The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. The show may sound a little bit different today as we are all recording remotely, so bear with us for the next few weeks, or maybe even months. We also want to hear directly from you, the listeners. What are you reading while self-isolating around the world? Let us know by dropping us an email at books.podcast at theguardian.com. We know there's a world of readers out there and we'll aim to reflect it by featuring your suggestions. This week, we return to life before lockdown in a discussion with Toby Ferris about his pursuit of the Dutch master Pieter Bruegel. But we'll focus on the current moment later in the show when we talk to bookseller Sam Fisher and Hay Festival director Peter Florence about the resourceful ways people in the literary world are dealing with the fallout from the pandemic. Toby Ferris was 42 when he decided he would track down the 42 surviving paintings by the 16th century Dutch master Peter Bruegel. Bruegel is famous for the brimming humanity of rustic paintings like The Fall of Icarus. You probably know it, even if it doesn't come immediately to mind. It's the picture with Icarus's legs disappearing into a bright green sea in the background, while in the foreground, a ploughman and his horse go about their business. As Ferris travelled between London and Vienna, Darmstadt and Detroit, he found himself face to face with questions of art, fatherhood and mortality. When he came to the studio... Richard began by asking him how he came up with his plan to confront the singular images Bruegel has left behind. I was working on a website called Anatomy of Norberton, uh, which was about Renaissance, Italian Renaissance art, and it started to drift into Netherlandish art. And at a certain point, in about 2012, I found myself looking at a Bruegel image and thinking, oh, that's Bruegel, I think I know some other Bruegel, and looking at the Wikipedia page and just, just being struck by how many of them were these sort of iconic, so what, such well-known paintings, but but not, I hadn't really associated them together with this one figure. So, I, I, and I was sort of struck by that. And at, at the same time, I think um, I, I think it felt a little bit like I'd found a like a, a, the code of the cosmos. If you like, it sounds very very grand. But what I mean by that is, it, it, it suddenly you see you see connections between things. I hadn't again, I, I hadn't really understood that the sons had spent so much time copying their father's work over and over and over again. So when I saw Bruegel's in museums, you know, in Cambridge, for example, where I live, there are three, but they're, they're Peter Bruegel the Younger, ah, his son. The other and, Bruegel. Yeah, so I thought, well, you know, what's... And then if you go, I think the first Bruegel that I really um, sort of saw in a museum and that really affected me was the census at Bethlehem. And that, that hangs in, a museum, in the museum in Brussels, and on the adjoining wall, adjacent wall, there's a copy by his son, and it's almost identical. And and that threw me. And so I realised, you know, okay, there's there's good Bruegel, there's bad Bruegel, you know. So I'll look at the good Bruegel. But you can't do, you can't detach them. That, and he's a very good copyist, the son. And and he also copied uh, paintings that um, no longer we no longer have. There there are examples of copies that you know clearly model on his father's work. But we don't have the original anymore. So it's a huge, you know, documentary terms, it's hugely important as well. The, the, you talk about the, a vast singular object that mm. spans all this, this Bruegel object, a, mm. a fascinating way of thinking about this, this oeuvre. Yeah, um, uh, that, that's, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you kind of bash them all together, I, I think I, I spent quite a lot of time working out the, you know, what, what the total area of this thing would the be. The surface but area, the thing. They, they seem to belong together in a way that, 
paintings by other artists, which of course belong, you know, Titian, for example, they belong together. But but Bruegel's could almost be this one space, almost, you know, take a couple out that that that, that sort of copious world, village world. They have they have a, a sense of. Um, I always think of Richard Scarry. Have you ever read Richard Scarry? The busy, busy world. Busy, busy world. Yeah, and, and you know, a busy town. So that, and you have these little tiny vignettes all over the place that you have to. Follow. And Bruegel, there's a sort of continuum. It's like turning the page of Richard Scarry in a way. And all these kind of uh, very familiar and slightly peculiar objects in the world. So you know, it's like in Richard Scarry, you get a I know, the gherkin lorry is driven by a piggy to go gherkin, and it's in the shape of a gherkin, and there are gherkins flying out the back. That's not a million miles away from Bruegel. And I think that probably at the time this project. I started thinking about this project. 2012, my, my children were at Richard Scarry kind of age. I think I was, I was spending a lot of time reading you know, Busy Busy World and all, all that stuff. Um, yeah, because, I mean, the Bruegel object is now distributed in space with his paintings dispersed around the world, uh-huh. you know, between Vienna, London, Darmstadt, Detroit. But it's also distributed in time. Mm. It, it's, you're seeing his work as you go around. You're seeing his work in patchwork fashion. Mm. So is that kind of Richard Scarry element? Is that one of the things that comes through? A page, I hadn't considered that the sort of page-turning element of the coming through, you know, going through the work. But um, it, it, it was curious because I, I, the, the first thing I did in 2012 when I realised... God, you know, this is just great. I really want to get to know this stuff. And I, I bought a, a huge, enormous book by a very eminent Bruegel scholar called Larry Silver. It's an enormous book, a brilliant reproductions. And I started going through this this book, and, I, and I, obviously I looked at them all. I got to know them all very well. And then I started travelling around to see them. But but I sort of, by the time I got to the end, the last one I saw. Uh, in brackets, actually, it wasn't quite the last one. We can talk about that as well, if you like. But the last one I saw was the, the end of the last journey was the Hay Harvest, which is in Prague, and it was one that I hadn't really thought about at all to the point where I went to see it. It's, it's on its own in a room in the Lobkowitz Palace in in Prague, and I went in there and I sat and looked at it for an hour, and it was extraordinary. And I, I, the, the 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 sense of discovering it was almost as if it was the first time I'd seen it. Uh, that that you know that sense of freshness and, and you know uh, just examining the detail for the first time i was struck by your suggestion that the mad behavior of the people in his proverb paintings would start to look a bit less crazy a bit more human with addition of a bit of context i'm wondering if bruegel's working in a kind of pre-shakespearean world where the where the, the characters are kind of stock characters with no inner life where they're just merely the butt of a joke well yes and no i mean i think you're absolutely right to connect it with shakespeare connect it the other direction with rabelais this these kind of this very theatrical world in fact um, that that sense that he he lived in a world that that expressed itself also in, in Antwerp in fifteen fifty fifteen sixty that expressed itself in in the popular theatre and they have they would have theatrical competitions between local villages and so on and he obviously was bound up in that and, and you know that that was how he thought to some degree and also the proverbs connect with that as you say but at the same time he's a he's clearly a painter who absolutely gets people or I guess outsiders largely, but people in general on their own terms. So, and the, the best example of that is the children. That that you get a, a sense with Bruegel that he absolutely just got them on their own terms in a way that's quite modern that you don't associate with artists, other artists of that time. You talk about painting as a medium of exchange, imagining as you stand in front of his paintings that you and Bruegel are standing in a market hoping to strike a good bargain at a fair price and each go home happy. But I was wondering, what's in it for Bruegel? I mean, he's been dead for 450 years. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I think it, it, it's probably what, one of the dangers of writing about this stuff or thinking about this stuff is that you get seduced into looking for 
points of contact. It's a way of appropriating him to my world in a sense because I have. You know, I have it almost job. feels like you get to know him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We can we can understand each other, look each other in the eye. I'm not sure that's entirely true. So <laughs> I, he he, he li- lives in a world that, in so many ways, is utterly alien. That just the, the way that they think about how the world is full of similarities all the way down the scale from you know, the microcosmic to the macrocosmic. The, you, know, you cut a walnut and it looks like a brain and therefore it's good. And all these similarities that, that, that the world is a you know, book you can read. All of this stuff is, is utterly alien in a way. And, and worry about the fact that any art or any music or whatever it is you, you, you engage with, in a sense, you're imposing yourself on it. Uh, and again, I think I, I say this somewhere in the book that I, I'm not really in this room to learn something about Bruegel. I'm here to impose my own patterns. And it, you have to think that any project like mine, and I, I suppose any book, or any you know, it, it has a sort of neurosis at its centre. It might be quite benign or, or you know, small scale. I think it was in my case. But the, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that the Bruegel thing emerged for me at a time where I was going, undergoing a, a pretty rapid change of identity from being a sort of feckless, you know, kid who just wrote, you know went, spent my time in Europe and you know teaching and not really looking, you know building a career or anything. To suddenly my father's dead. I've got two children. My mother's got dementia, and I'm somehow I'm the father figure in my own world. And and that that was a a pretty rapid change, as it is for many people. And that at, at that exact time I was imposing this um, pattern on it. It, it, it. That might just be coincidence, but it's happened before. Yeah, standing in front of Dullagreet, you lament the lack of a vocabulary for visual perception. So that, that standing there is a kind of noteworthy percept of ruddiness, as you say. But isn't that kind of the point of visual art, that, that you can produce visual sensations that yeah, are kind of worth noticing? Absolutely. So I think that the, what struck me about the, the Dullagreet, in fact, was that it was like standing in front of a Rothko. You know, that, that colour field that that somehow sets up this strange perceptual harmonic in you and, you know, that you respond to in a very visceral kind of way. Um, I, I, there is, I think, all the way through the book, I, I'm kind of worried about how you read a painting and, and, and then how you experience it when you stand in front of it. It's a rather different thing. There's a great book by, a very famous book by T.J. Clark, The Sight of Death, where he, you know, T.J. Clark, an art historian who goes every day to see these same two Poussin paintings and writes about how the light changes in a very detailed way about how, you know, how his experience, what he notices that particular day, like diary entries, effectively. And then at the end, there's a penny-dropping moment where it turns out that, of course, he's thinking about his mother and mortality and all sorts of stuff that was bound up that you hadn't realised was there. But, but he, that, that sense that the way that you experience a painting is rather different from the way you then talk about it, or write about it, of course, and that trying to capture that, which the book a little bit does, is... is is tricky. Well, necessarily tricky, because otherwise they might have, you know, written something down rather than bothered with the brushes. Yeah, well, that's also true, yeah. Absolutely true, that it's its own, its own world, its own language world, yeah. I mean, if you'd say that Bruegel's peasants are living up on the surface of the world, locked into everlasting cycles, they're fully alive. I wonder if you're in danger of romanticising their actually quite awkward, brutal lives. Yeah, I think, as, you, as I said before, that I think you, you impose something that you want to see. So if, if I'm looking for a solution to a some sort of, you know, psycho-spiritual sort of crisis, a midlife crisis. If, if that's what I'm looking for, that kind of solution, then of course I'm going to, I'm going to make things sit in a pattern that that is congenial 
to me you know <laughs> that's, why, that's why i'm here and, that, and so you're 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 right and, and I, what you hope of course is that you can't quite do that and that things spill out of the edges a bit and and i i uh, i was conscious writing about you know um for example the beggars a small painting in paris and there are also the the same group of beggars in the in uh, carnival in Lent, which is in vienna and it's obviously something that and they're, they're lepers. They have you know, various disfigurements. They've, they've lost legs and so on. They have prostheses, these wooden prostheses. And I was conscious writing about that, that, that what you want to see is a painter, Bruegel, who has this great human, I don't know, generalizing, romanticizing horribly spirit, who looks at these marginal outcast individuals and feels this great sort of, you know, in his terms, Christ-like, you know, um, uh, sense you know sense of their of their ostracization i don't know that that's true i think i think brugger was very capable of of creating patterns from some of these outsider groups that are we would find inimical so he for example gypsies is another good example he um and gypsies is kind of the correct word in this case because people outside the gypsy community impose on gypsies and he he uses them as a a sign of some some kind of menace or some kind of you know some so in the census of Bethlehem there's a there's a gypsy woman with these very characteristic round hats stealing vegetables from the garden of a leper who's who's little, got his little leper hut in his little garden there. That's a stereotypical image of uh, yeah, yeah. sort of marauding outsiders you can't you know and so he he's quite capable of that and you wonder how hard his eye was and how you know, accurate in that sense but also how he would have thought it was peculiar to. For, you know, in my case, to bond all these people together in a sense of you know these are outsiders and marginal people, like you know you sort of identify with that in some way. Um, it's a complex thing, I think. It's a complex reaction that you have to, it and you know, there's no simple answer. But I think you're right. There is a danger of romanticizing. I mean, you say that it's a complex situation, and there's no simple answer. But he keeps sliding out of your grasp, doesn't he? I mean, there's the small roundel of the drunkard pushed into the pigsty. The singularity, as you write, at the heart of your project. And what about the, the what about the the panels which may or may not be by Bruegel or, or his drawings or his engravings? I mean, it's 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 a it's, it seems so graspable, but it's actually totally unfinishable. Well, yes and no. So you, I, I I drew a line at the the, the graphic works so of the drawings and the engravings, just because they're, they're wonderful, and I do talk about them a bit in the book. But they're often in private collections and or collections to which it's difficult to gain access if you're not an art historian. I try to see some in the Albertina. The, at the drawing museum in, in Vienna, but they they said no. Come back and <laughs> we've got an exhibition in a year. Come back and look at them there. So that's, that's fine, fair enough. But so I, I drew a line there. But the the, the Bruegel catalogue is in fact extremely stable and extremely well documented. Partly because he did it himself. He's everything is well, almost every painting is carefully signed and dated. And attribution. You're right that around the margins there are some that might or might not be by him, but very few. If you compare it with Bosch, for example, or you know, Holbein, where, where there is school of or workshop of, or you know, attribution is discussed endlessly. It isn't the case with Bruegel. You get a sense that it's quite a tight thing. So, of course, I made arbitrary, you know, I put arbitrary boundaries around it, but but there's only really a small handful that. But there's a, a little blurring, a fading, nevertheless. You speak about standing in front of the hay harvest in Prague. You 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 ask when you'll be done with looking, and I guess, again, isn't that kind of the point of art, or at least art that's any good is that you're never quite done with looking yeah i, I mean i i think that's part of that part of how it got hitched into a project in a sense and, I, and that, as i say that's not the first time i'd done that that the 
the website that I still work on intermittently, Anatomy of Norberton, about Renaissance Italian art mainly, um, is is this ongoing, unending, because it's already got up to the letter T, it's alphabet, alphabetized, and I think I'm about to do a page in, in U for the first time. So it's this non, non, non-ending kind of thing, but it's a way of trying to grapple them into some meaningful structure. And, and a book is a finished object. A book is, I mean, like it or not, at some point you deliver the manuscript. You, you, in a way, the book is a way of yoking all that that experience together and making it, you know, giving it a certain shape. But, but maybe that's kind of the part of the problem of a project like this, of a book like this in a way, that it necessarily ignores some of the messiness of the world around it. Yeah, I don't know that writing is necessarily tidy and art is necessarily messy in that respect. I think you know, art, writing, good writing, if you engage properly with something, can also have these messy fractal edges. And so that, you know, yeah, I say it's a contained book, but then a painting is contained within its frame and whatever it is. So perhaps, you know, you hope that you capture something of that, that um, the, the, the irre- irreconcilables in between the experience and the what you know about the painting or between different paintings or between, you know, readings of paintings, that, that something of that will inevitably creep into a, into a book. A book, I'm struck, is quite a big thing. So the, the, it is bigger than you've realised when you have to grapple with every single detail, you know. So, so maybe, maybe there's, it, it does kind of come towards a, you know, a point of contact in that sense with the with the art and the, the sprawliness of the art. No, you say that it, it came out of some sort of midlife crisis in a way. I mean, the, Bruegel himself died at 42, mm. producing paintings for 17 years between about 1552 and 1569. Mm. Does that kind of productivity, does that kind of brief career of amazingness make you feel a little bit like you're living on borrowed time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm 50 now. And, uh, you know, I've, I've just sort of plopped out one book and uh, there it is <laughs> now I think well maybe I've got another one maybe on the go but oh god time is so short yeah yeah definitely I, I think that I, I I was working on stuff before and you know I had the, the website I also you know wrote books that like you know novels I couldn't get published in my 20s that kind of stuff so I have been working on it for a while but uh he, he was working on paintings for even less time than that it was about nine years because he his graphic art started in yeah the 1550s he didn't he didn't really the first attested art uh, panel is is 1557 then there's a two-year gap 1559 so it's about eight or nine years an extraordinary um uh assurance that he had working in paint at that point um yeah I, but he was he was you know I'm not sure I want to compare myself with <laughs> or what, worry that I'm not as somehow as you know productive or. You know. I, I guess I mean maybe you would maybe you resist comparing yourself to Bruegel, but I, mean, I wonder if this book is in some sense also an answer to that empty diary of your father's as mm. well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, th- I think that uh, so the, the the story is my father wrote this decided to write his memoir, this is in 1979, which incidentally was a year after his father died. And, I, and that was a peculiar relationship, which I never really fathomed. But he sat down, he, th- he decided to write his memoir, and he wrote one line, which was something like, it is said that in every life there's one book and this is mine, some cliche sort of opening. And he would have had a couple of whiskeys and sat down and done this, and this huge desk diary, absolutely enormous thing. And that was it. And then it was on the shelf in our house for years. I still have it. Um, and the, the sense that he was, yeah, um, you know, a man of blank pages, and I don't mean by that that he didn't have lived experience. Of course he did, but I know I know very little about it. And my brother and I have talked about this. That you know, the, the sense that that um, he uh, it's also generational, I suppose, not just personal, but that he wasn't someone that talked about 
you know, except in the most anecdotal, if he had a few favourite anecdotes, he got drunk, he'd, you know, have a few whiskeys and he'd talk, he'd, the same anecdotes would come out. But but that sense that life for him never really quite, you know, coalesced in, you know, in the way that, that it could have done or he would like it to have done. And he, um, I think that's def- this is definitely a response to that in some way. It has to be, you know, that um, that, that's why he find why he finds his way into the book so much. You know, inevitably uh, he's there. He just pops up here and there, and it's clearly on my in you know, on my mind that this is something I'm dealing with. And part of the whole, you know, th- th- there's also the character of Dan as a character, as a person, but he's in the book, I suppose, a character. And he he, he da- Dan died at the age of in his early twenties. Uh, and the book starts with this paragliding accident that Dan was involved in. He survived that, but he then, a couple of years later, he died. And he was the most vital person I've ever met. He was extraordinary. He was, he would, you know, I, I climbed a mountain with him one time, climbed a mountain, so I was grand. I walked up a mountain, it happened to be an Aaron, walked up Goat Fell. And it, when we were resting and breathing hard, he was walking around on his hands, not even particularly showing off. He just couldn't stop. He was like one of those kids that, you know, just never, ever stops. And and so the contrast between that concentration of life and then my dad's vast, empty book that I guess, you know, there's stuff there. I, I, that That's clearly something you want to, at a certain point in your life, you start to worry about, <laughs> you know, just get angsty about whatever it is, you know. So, yeah, I'm sure that's... That's, that's in there too. I mean, yeah. this book, this this glossy publication with the full bleed images, mm. the, the, the glowing reviews, the appearance on the Guardian Books podcast, is this the final failure in a life of failure attempted with superior clarity and precision in Normanton? <laughs> um... That's interesting. I I, uh, I I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with the Norberton site. The, the, Nor- the, the Norberton site um, has a very clearly for me has a narratorial voice, right? So th- th- there's a he was slightly crazy, and it's be, someone once said to me, "It's batshit crazy." This guy's just <laughs> batshit crazy, and and so that's fine. And so I handle stuff that he's, he essentially has a very systemizing kind of brain and a very unemotional response. But he li- he likes art, so he writes about art a lot. Slightly odd kind of way, and when I wrote the book, I was obviously that wasn't what I was going for. <laughs> Batshit crazy was not <laughs> the you know the, the design. Different mood, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't know. You see, I don't know how much. And I've started to think about this quite a lot recently. How much a is not in the book? I'm sure there is an element of that because I talk about the spreadsheet that I drew up. But I really did draw up a spreadsheet, so maybe the narratorial voice, as I like to call it, and it, there's a little bit of truth in that as well. So th- th- there is there is a lot of overlap. I, I think. This is there's definitely a continuum between Norberton and and Bruegel. There's, there's, some of the some of the passages in the Bruegel book actually kept, originally were in Norberton. I just extracted them and you know and used them in the book because they were the right kind of you know because they were my responses to the paintings I was seeing at the time. So there's there's a lot of part of the similar project or the same project in some sort of different uh, way. Yeah, absolutely. That was Toby Ferris. Short Life in a Strange World is published by Fourth Estate in the UK and Harper in the US. After the break, we'll be talking to Sam Fisher from London independent bookshop Burley Fisher about how coronavirus is affecting book sales, and to Peter Florence about how the Hay Festival is coping with life under lockdown. But before we get to that, we'd love to get your views regarding the wider world of podcasts. Your opinions will be extremely valuable to us and will be used to help shape the future of Guardian Podcasts. As a thank you for your contribution, there will be a chance for you to win a John Lewis voucher worth £250. Don't worry, we will not take any personal details other than an email address if you'd like to be entered into the prize draw. If you'd like to help us with this, you can access the survey on Guardian Surveys, 
com forward slash podcast or alternatively click on the link to the survey in the notes for this episode welcome back to the guardian books podcast coronavirus has meant that some of us have a bit more free time for leisure activities like reading we are really interested to find out what you are reading right now on our tips links and suggestions blog some of our readers have been telling us about how self-isolation has changed what they're reading one regular, Pat Lux, said they have been revisiting books that they had bought in art galleries around the world. They wrote, I tend to look at them on the journey home, and then they sit on my shelves for years. I have decided that each day I will remove one book from my shelves and leaf through it. This will doubtless bring to mind memories of not only the paintings, but also the trip to the city where the art gallery is. Yeah, I'm with, I'm with Pat Lux on this one. I, I went, I recently went all the way to Guatemala. Can you imagine those days <laughs> to interview a, a, an amazing Swiss Argentinian eco artist? That's what I, I think of her as anyway, um, called Vivian Suter. And I have a great fat catalogue on my coffee table of the amazing work she's done in her garden, where, where it looks much more alive than it, than it does in the sort of grey English light of Camden Art Centre, where she's just recently been exhibiting. And I do actually look at it again and again, and it makes me feel happy and it makes me feel as if I'm out outside and I mean that there is I guess like there's nothing like a, a crisis to make us appreciate books that we already have but um it's interesting to see how it might be affecting our appetite for buying new books um and bookshops are not on the list for essential retailers that have been allowed to stay open in the UK um but a couple of weeks ago we reported on the ingenious links that some booksellers were going to to get books to their customers um using skateboards and bicycles and delivering them by hand and uh, last week we reported that book sales in the UK have been skyrocketing in the lead up to the lockdown and on the line with us now is Sam Fisher from the London bookshop Burley Fisher Books to tell us about how it's all going. Hi Sam. Hi there, how's it going? Oh really well thank you. How are you going? Because you've been out delivering books on your bike. Uh, yeah, we uh, well up until last Monday we, we, we were out on our bikes. Um, we were doing it for about a week um, from when people started self-isolating as a way to try and uh, make sure people could get still get their books <laughs> but then that all changed did that all change when when boris made his announcement boris johnson made his announcement about um the lockdown it did yeah we decided in order to kind of reduce the amount of uh, contact we would only deliver books by post since the postal workers are, are going out anyway it, it, it seemed to make sense um that we reduce that service rather than kind of increasing the amount of contact by going out on our bike how was it when you were delivering it by hand? What, what? Because obviously you were then seeing uh, customers um, at that point yourselves. Um, uh, was there a lot of enthusiasm for what you guys were doing? Yeah, there was a huge amount of enthusiasm, um, which we were really grateful for because we were obviously uh, really worried about what the uncertainty was going to mean for the shop. Uh, but the way that the community responded was incredibly reassuring. And it was really interesting to go and speak to people on yeah. their doorsteps, which is... Uh, it's a, it's a kind of slightly different scenario to um, our usual day to day. And so now you're sending out books. I mean, um, we there's some numbers that we reported last week that included that overall book sales in the UK were up six percent, but paperback fiction had shot up by thirty eight percent, and nonfiction was down thirteen percent. Um, have you noticed any trends in what people are buying at the moment? I think um, def definitely fiction has seen a huge spike. Uh, people are looking for mm. escape from their confinement um, in the stories of that other people have written. So uh, I think long books as well. Um, there was kind of initially a slight spike in books about plague 
uh, Journal of the Plague Year and uh, Station Eleven <laughs> um, and other plague narratives, which was, but that seems to have tailed off slightly now that people uh, realise that they're stuck inside for the foreseeable. I think perhaps don't want to read about the plague um, <laughs> quite so much. <laughs> I think it's fair enough. We think about the books going out to customers, but what about the supply line to you? Are you having problem getting books into the bookshop? Well, the, the, it depends. A lot of the couriers are having trouble because I think uh, of their um, slightly shady employment practices, meaning that it's difficult for them to um, get workers in when, when workers get ill. But the Royal Mail is still working uh, so far really, really well. So, um, yeah. It's, it's it's more a case of uh, making making because we're working unusual hours is, is is that that can be difficult, yeah. And what is the mood among the staff? Like, uh, how are you guys all feeling at this point in time about the future of the shop? Uh, I think at this point we still feel positive. It, it, it's um, it's it's strange having to work remotely. Obviously, it's a it's a business that you normally see each other all the time so um, we actually started a podcast as well um, as a way of kind of kind of keep to try and keep us connected with one another so that's been a great um way of uh kind of keeping the, the spirit up um but yeah i mean th- it's been very busy so uh at the moment i still feel fairly positive about the future of the bookshop um and uh the enthusiasm for the written word yeah that is that has been one sort of remarkable thing to see that um uh you, you, i think there's this pressure on people at the moment to use their time uh, in some sort of useful way um, and somehow better themselves by writing screenplays and uh, reading challenging books. But it's actually been remarkable to see that so many people are up for that challenge and they are going out and buying War and Peace and uh, uh, sort of trickier books that perhaps they wouldn't have normally had the time for. Um, so thank you so much, Sam. No pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So that's some good news. But the coronavirus is also hitting cultural events and festivals hard. One of them is the Hay Literature Festival, which sees more than 250,000 people head to the tiny town in Wales each year in May and June. Recently, the coronavirus meant the 2020 festival had to be cancelled. But with 70% of its finances coming from ticket and book sales, the entire future of the festival is now in doubt. Here to tell us a bit more about it is the director, Peter Florence. Peter, welcome. Are you? How are you feeling? <laughs> well... I'm feeling amazingly encouraged by the extraordinary response we've had over the last 10 days from the public, from writers, from our colleagues and partners about how we might move forward together. Obviously, you're right. It's a it's a devastating blow for us, but it's also really hard for all the freelancers who uh, speak on our stages for all the local um, services that depend on the festival. You know, the, the festival runs for 11 days, but is responsible for generating about £26 million every year into the local economy. And that's all gone in a flash. Uh, the, the, pro- the problem for us was largely one of timing. It came at the absolute maximum point of exposure, where um, we'd spent vast amounts of money on infrastructure and programming and and planning. And uh, it turns out that the end of May is going to be the peak of this horrific epidemic. And 
so inevitably our first call was to um was to try and make sure that everyone who lives in hay who is vulnerable was protected and was not exposed so one thing i always say to people who who people know about the hay festival but unless you've actually been there and you've been there in festival time and also outside festival time what is the amazing thing about this festival is most of the year it is just a field with cows in it <laughs> so this this sort of huge thing grows up and generates a huge amount of money for the local economy from what is actually just a bit of pasture. The spirit within the town is absolutely extraordinary. You, you suddenly get a very clear understanding of what an essential service actually is. And the way in which collaborations have been formed between the food retailers and the people who are working on the front line of care delivery is, is deeply moving. So the festival has its constituency here, but it also has a kind of global community of people who have responded so brilliantly to our call out. We had a, a, a have a GoFundMe campaign running that has had uh, almost 2,000 people contributing to it. You've asked for um, £150,000. You're about halfway there now, are you? Uh, we're we're slightly further than that because we've also um, had a lot of people who had bought tickets uh, who are being refunded. A lot of them have donated their ticket purchase in a separate account. So actually, we are getting close to it. We're still a little way to go. But the moving thing about it is that some of the people who are giving have been to the festival every year for the last 33 years. Some have grown up here. One who donated said he was actually conceived at the festival. There are a bunch of people who've never been who say, I'd like it to be there in the future, which is incredibly moving. And that, that's an amazing obligation that we have as an organization to, to meet up to that amazing generosity and commitment that people are showing. So you have expanded internationally over the years and um, you, you have, I think, is it eight festivals now? Um, and I noticed that on your website that you still, you, you, Croatia, which is only, it, it actually overlaps with, with the hay, the, the, the Wales, the Welsh festival slightly, is still going ahead according to your website. Are you hoping to keep the international offering going? We're about to announce the postponement of Croatia. Um, we're looking at the moment at Mexico and Segovia in September and Peru in November and then uh, uh, Cartagena in January. But one of the the wonderful things that has happened is we're all now talking and sharing best practice in what a digital festival might look like. You already have your hay levels, which suddenly struck me would be incredibly useful for some of the um, school students who found themselves at home bored. T just very quickly t say a little bit about what they are. Oh, the hay levels are a magic, magic idea that were born out of the fact that Marcus de Sotoy was at school, I think, or university with the former head of Hereford Sixth Form College, who arranged to pick him up to bring him to the festival for his gig about four or five years ago. And Jonathan Godfrey, the uh, teacher, picked uh, Marcus up in a minivan in which he had eight of his students who were coming to the gig. Marcus gave them an, an impromptu masterclass in the back of the, of the minibus. And then we thought, how do we replicate that for pupils who don't happen to be in the back of that minibus? And Marcus and over 600 other academics from every discipline have recorded little three-minute films um, from every subject, from history and economics and social sciences to math, physics, chemistry, biology, geography, history, 
and they're talking about A-level and GCSE syllabus work. And they're just, they're beautiful little nuggets of three-minute superstardom and insight that don't necessarily teach you the syllabus, but give you that added magic that might inspire young people to read on or think on about what they're talking about. A great resource and easily findable on YouTube. And the Hay Level's name is is <laughs> quite cute and, and easily recognisable. Peter, thank you. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Greg Jenner about our obsession with celebrities. Don't forget to let us know what you're reading right now and how you're enjoying it. Drop us an email at books.podcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Apoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Podcasts.